This week on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Bashir, you know, snagged it away uh, in 2019 from Bevan. And to lose it, I think, is not just indicative of what's going on in this campaign, but it's indicative of how they view him over the last four years. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. One of the biggest weeks in politics in recent memory, a huge day for Daniel Cameron, Donald Trump's fourth indictment, and a school meltdown in Jefferson County. This is Flyover Country with Scott Jennings, and I am your roundtable host, Joe Arnold. Sean Southern is here. Hello, Sean. What? Hello. Wait, who? Huh? Jerry, I'm back. New phone. Back. Who dis? <laughs> I know. Jared Crawford. Have you missed me, Flyover Country? Yeah. We all eh, missed you. Man. <laughs> Jared Crawford is here, Scott Jennings, and uh, so, Scott, busy times. You're back in Kentucky, though, right? I am back in Kentucky. I've been in uh, New York and Washington, D.C. the last few days. I went up uh, last Friday night to do uh, The Source with Caitlin Collins and her new show on Friday night. I was on with, uh, what was the name of that congressman, that ex-congressman I was on with? Max Rose from New York. He was one of the young veterans that won in 2018, and then he lost his seat in 2020 and I think got beat again in 2022. Interesting guy. Uh, told me... Um, was uh, one, at one point in his life trying to open a pizzeria in Louisville. So he had, he had a little connection to us. And then I went down to Washington this weekend and I did State of the Union with Jake Tapper and had an interesting conversation there. And then back to New York for Indictment Watch, which we're going to talk about on the show tonight, which came a little earlier than we thought. It came Monday night, Donald Trump being indicted in Georgia. And then I was able to get home this morning and I'll be home for a few days before going back to New York next week for coverage of the first Republican debate of the GOP presidential primary. So a lot of movement for me, a lot of news. And while I was gone, Joe, we had big news here in Kentucky. Yeah, keep listening, by the way, for uh, Scott Jennings, Johnny Cochran impersonation. That's coming up here on Flyover Country. But yes, but Scott, you and I uh, both, you had to watch from, from afar for what really shaped up to be, Sean, maybe the biggest day since the primary election of the gubernatorial campaign for the Republican nominee, Daniel Cameron. Yeah, Tuesday was a big day for the Cameron campaign and really for the entire Republican slate. Uh, On Tuesday, uh, Daniel Cameron unveiled the Cameron catch-up plan, which is his proposal to address learning loss inflicted on Kentucky students as a result of Andy Bashir's school shutdowns. And really well thought out proposal, uh, specifically targeted at getting kids caught up on the reading and math uh, subjects that they lost during the pandemic. Uh, the largest expansion of reading and math programs during the summer months, but also uh, in after school programs uh, during the fall. Sean, this um, plan was a sweeping three-pillar plan uh, from Daniel Cameron. A couple things stood out to me. One, Cameron's attitude towards the topic of education and specifically towards school teachers, I think is noteworthy because obviously we all know how Matt Bevan handled this relationship back in 
2019 and during his term that uh, all came just before he got beat by Andy Bashir. Cameron is taking a totally different uh, lane on this and really is offering up, I think, a completely refreshed attitude from the Republican Party to the school teachers. And then on the plan itself, as you mentioned, this sweeping expansion of tutoring and programming is noteworthy. Uh, the second pillar of his plan was getting control of the classrooms. There's all sorts of reports from teachers and superintendents that classroom behavior uh, is just, uh, since the pandemic, it's just terrible. And of course, that interrupts the learning environment and puts people in danger. And then finally, uh, getting control of the administrative bloat and trying to protect teachers from all the bureaucracy and administrative work they have to do that takes away from their time helping the students. Jared, we got some sound from Daniel Cameron's press conference. And his record on education has left our future generations floundering. While he was unlocking the jails, he was locking the schools. And because of it, our children are worse off than when he took office. Every metric by which we measure our students has seen a drop under Bashir's leadership. Fewer than half of Kentucky students can read at grade level. In math, it's even worse. Science, just 29%. In national assessments since 2019, we have declined in every single tested category. Scott, it seems to me that we had this conversation, you know, all throughout the pandemic, and especially as the schools were shut down, all of us who are parents, we could directly see the effect on our children. And then, of course, in society, we've seen it big time. But the big question I had that entire time was, will we remember? Will voters remember? Will parents remember once the election comes around? It seems to me, Daniel Cameron, obviously, there's two things here. Elect From an election standpoint, He's banking on it. He's saying, yes, people remember because you're still living it. But secondly, what's thought, so thoughtful about this plan is that it goes beyond perhaps what anyone would have thought of maybe five years ago or you know, pre-pandemic. What he's doing here is he's saying, let's recognize the damage that was done. What can we do to reframe you know, our thought process? Because the facts changed. I mean, because we know that the that, that learning loss is a real thing. Yeah, I, I think that Daniel acknowledging the dire straits that we're in regarding learning loss was noteworthy because Andy Bashir won't do it. Because to acknowledge it would be to admit the massive mistake that he made in closing the schools for as long as he did. Jared, you know the numbers, but you could tick through for us just how bad it's gotten. I mean, every academic metric and, in, in, and also on absenteeism, chronic truancy. What, what are the numbers, Jared? Yeah, just since 2019, so just in kind of the Bashir era, chronic absenteeism has increased from 18 to 28% of kids. Nearly a third of students are chronically absent in our schools. We talk about like losing kids in the system sometimes, you know, like falling through the, we can't, we don't, these kids aren't even coming to school. Like forget about them skipping class or, you know, not behaving in the classroom. They literally aren't showing up for school. And to your point, Scott, Andy Bashir has has almost ignored this. The, there was this kind of perfect dichotomy because he came out the next day with his education plan. And you could have pulled that plan from like the 2008 DNC 
resolution, yeah. right? He, like he, there was... he will never he he will never acknowledge this, Jared, because uh, these Bashirs. This has always been this way with these people. They double down on everything. They double down on everything, and and a hallmark of Bashir's education leadership has been steadfastly ignoring the truth and the facts. And they're doubling down on that ignorance. And I just, I don't think it's going to work. Joe, you saying, are people going to remember? I think every parent knows exactly where their student stands. I mean, they all take these tests. Jared's given us the test scores. They know, and their teachers know, and their teachers are telling the parents. And so, yeah, I do think they're going to remember. Uh, and I think they're looking for somebody to rescue their kids, Jared. Yeah, I'll add to one of the, I mean, look, Andy Bashir has been the governor for, for four years and, came out with this plan to raise teacher pay and fund transportation, all these sorts of things. Where, where's, where are these initiative been the last four years? I mean, you, you, we see this all the time. This is, this is, was really a staple of education policy for a long time is, you know, the, the left would get raises for teachers and maybe more contributions to pensions and the right got school choice or charter schools or voucher programs. And it was always kind of about meeting in the middle to help both teachers and students. And where has Andy Bashir been for the last four years trying to get these proposals through? Literally nowhere. He has no relationship with the legislature. He he has no emphasis on actually getting any of these proposals turned into law. They're just, it's four years of false promises to these teachers. I don't know. They talk about you know him cornering the teacher market. How? What has he done for them? He's made classrooms less safe. The kids aren't showing up. They aren't happy when they get there because of the bus debacle. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. Why teachers think he has their back? Well, and Jared, you made a really interesting point, which is that the governor has no relationship with the General Assembly to accomplish any of the goals that he has offered. Uh, I will I will just slightly modify something that you said. That part of the plan the governor unveiled today, which we should note, was from his podium in a state government office building uh, from his perch as governor, not a campaign press conference. Uh, so he's he's now done this twice where he uses his official office to unveil campaign promises. It's very interesting. It seems like no one in the Kentucky press corps or in the national press corps is interested in that fact, but I'll just set that aside. Um, but when he, when he unveiled all these proposals today, I think it was 11 point plan, uh, James Allen Tipton, the, the House Education Committee chairman, issued a statement and said that Andy Bashir is trying to play catch up to the Cameron catch up plan unveiled yesterday. And for years, Andy Bashir has made empty promises to teachers, parents and students. He's inflicted historic learning loss on a generation, and now he suddenly cares about education. He nor any member of his office has reached out to me to discuss any plan. So so what you have here is. A total charlatan standing at a podium saying, I'm going to do all these things. And he has not lifted one finger to call the legislative body, the, the chairman of the committee of jurisdiction, to say, hey, what do you think about this? And so uh, Tipton went on to say that, you know, Cameron has a much better shot of getting his plan enacted because he has relationships with the General Assembly, which is kind of a theme that we heard on, on uh, the campaign trail this week. Uh, from not only from members of the legislature, but also members of the law enforcement community. Yeah, th this is a key issue for Cameron, I think, uh, and something voters in Kentucky really have to think about. doesn't really matter what Andy Bashir tells you. doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. 
because he has no relationship with the legislature. He has not attempted to have one. Uh, every interaction he has with them is negative because he's vetoing legislation that's about to be overridden. It's totally broken. I mean, Andy Bashir. I mean, you talk to any of these legislators, guys in leadership, uh, committee chairs, he doesn't meet with them. He doesn't talk to them. There's no collaboration. So if you're a teacher or a cop or anyone else who might want something out of Frankfurt, you got to ask yourself, who's got a better chance of working with the legislature to get what you want? Daniel Cameron or Andy Bashir? I thought Cameron masterfully, Sean, made that point during his uh, press conference. And then while all of that was going on, we got the breaking news from the Kentucky Fraternal Order of Police uh, Joe, that they had switched their endorsement from Andy Bashir, who they backed in 2019, to Daniel Cameron in 2023. Jared, we have Daniel's comments on that. Hey, everybody, I just learned some exciting news. The Kentucky State FOP has endorsed my campaign for governor of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. It's an honor to have their help. You all know I am always going to stand up and support and back the blue and the brave men and women of our law enforcement community. Again, it is an honor to have the Kentucky State FOP's endorsement. Thank you so much. God bless you, and God bless Kentucky. This was really noteworthy because both campaigns, I know for a fact, both campaigns were engaged in a behind-the-scenes pitched battle to get this endorsement. They wanted it. Bashir, you know, snagged it away. Uh, in 2019 from Bevan and to lose it, I think is not just indicative of what's going on in this campaign, but it's indicative of how they view him over the last four years. I don't think they think Andy Bashir has kept his promises, nor do I think they believe he can be an effective governor for their priorities. They see in Daniel someone who agrees with their priorities, but also has a fighting chance of helping them enact policies with the legislature, Joe, I uh, to your point, Scott. That's what I found to be just you know take away the names from this endorsement and just thinking about this from the calculus of you have an incumbent governor who was the already endorsed candidate as a challenger four years ago, and I'll just tell you from a if you look ask any advocacy group in the state, most are going to be pretty loath to separate themselves from an incumbent because of what you have to lose. You know, in other words, there's 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 the possibility of retribution or of souring a relationship. And for the FOP to go out on this limb, to basically change the endorsement, you know, uh, in, in the midst of a, of a race, and, and for the incumbent who's trying to win re-election, that to me is, regardless of, again, what the names are, but that, that is a significant change. I don't, that, that's un also unusually, I think, in, in politics. Very unusual, uh, but noteworthy. And I, I agree with you. I think the cops, Sean, showed a ton of courage here in doing what they did. But it's, but it's not without good reason. I mean, Daniel is their guy. And you've had... Hundreds of police officers individually endorse Daniel Cameron for governor. You've had major law enforcement figures around the state endorse Cameron. But when the FOP, and, and that's their that's their organization that really drives their policy agenda in Frankfurt. When they come out and say the incumbent 
we're done with that. We're moving on to a new person that, that it, it spoke volumes about, I think what they're hoping to do in Frankfurt over the next few years. And I think it spoke volumes about their lack of confidence that Andy Bashir uh, could deliver anything at all, Sean. Yeah, well, you look at the fact that this governor released 1,700 criminals from jail, that nearly 50% went on to recommit offenses. A third of the people that he released went on to commit felonies. So there's that fact. You look at the fact that Daniel Cameron unveiled a public safety plan, a really robust 12-point safety plan uh, last month, that was aimed at reducing crime, but also supporting members of law enforcement, doing everything from increasing pay, providing bonuses, but saying, listen, if you kill a cop in this state and you're convicted of killing a cop, then you should be charged with the death penalty. These are things that most people agree with. And Daniel is the only person – really, there's an interesting dynamic happening in this race where Daniel Cameron is the only candidate in this race introducing ideas, actual ideas into this race. So he's done it on the Cameron catch-up plan, and he's done it with the Cameron public safety plan. And Andy Bashir has no innovative or interesting or real policy changes to actually change the lives of Kentuckians in this state. And it's more and, – and, and what you're hearing from the candidates, I think this is a great point, Sean – it's it's about more than just spending. You know, the state does have budget reserves. By the way, budget reserves that Andy Bashir vetoed, but the legislature okay. overrode. And so we have budget reserves thanks to the Republicans of the legislature. You know, everyone can spend. But Cameron's actually proposing real policy changes. He doesn't view cops and teachers as just political commodities to be bought and sold. He's looking at this through the lens of what policy can we apply to these professions that would actually make their lives better, make their jobs easier, and give us better outcomes. And I think they're recognizing that. Now, on this law enforcement business, so Daniel was having a great day on Tuesday. His education plan comes out. He gets the FOP endorsement. But everybody, Jared, woke up early Tuesday morning, and I know Andy Bashir saw it in his email on his ad tracking the minute he woke up on Tuesday, to a new independent expenditure ad. This is the Club for Growth affiliate school freedom group in Kentucky. They've already been running an ad on all the Bashir pardons. And they went in on Tuesday morning, zoomed in on one of those specific Bashir pardons, and this ad, Jared, was a doozy. Convicted felon Ashley Lewis should have been in jail that day. Jeremy Caldwell, a young father, should have been safe as he sat in his car. But Governor Andy Bashir signed an order commuting Lewis's sentence. Months later, she helped murder Caldwell in broad daylight, leaving three children fatherless five days before Christmas. When a governor's signature becomes a death warrant for innocent Kentuckians, take away his pen. School Freedom Fund is responsible for the content of this ad. Yeah, that that ad, Joe, uh, popped out Tuesday. And boy, as soon as it hit the TV, I started hearing from folks. I mean, this thing is one of the most blistering. And, and obviously, we're just getting the audio here. But when you see how they visually rendered this ad in this situation that was directly caused by Andy Bashir, it's a it might be the most scorching ad in the campaign so far. 
You and I were talking the other day, uh, Scott, uh, about just I, I had not seen I have not watched a lot of broadcast TV the last couple of weeks just because of my job and, and just not being able to be a part of it. But directly in, in advance of us talking on this podcast here, by the way, we're recording this about 10 o'clock on the evening of uh, Wednesday, August 16th. And so I, I put the TV news on in Louisville tonight. And my goodness. I mean, the ads just back to back to back. Certainly, that, that you're right about that particular ad is it's it's rather uh, it's it's stark and it's and it's uh, it's memorable. very strong. It's memorable. But I mean, it, you it won't is, forget it. it. Yeah, but but it is a major slug for us right now going on on the on the airwaves in in Kentucky in this race overall. I I shared with you uh, uh, or oh, a report as far as like this includes the the what's been reserved for later in the campaign. But an estimated, uh, well, I think like $29 million, $27 million, uh, $27 million overall will make this the most expensive governor's race in Kentucky history. So there's no shortage, I guess, of, of funds out there for these ads. But what, what can, given what we've seen and the one you just mentioned from Club for Growth, Scott and Sean, what, what should we expect here as the campaign rolls on? Well, I and 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 what we've seen spent and placed is is not nearly going to be all of it because several of the groups that are currently in have not laid down time for the fall yet. The RGA has been spending; they've not laid down time for the fall. The Cameron campaign is on the air now; they haven't laid down any time. So there's there's a lot more reservations and spending to come, and we're already um, seeing, as you mentioned, a ton of ad traffic you know i'm i'm not certain what has stuck yet with people my instincts are that the bashir camp is extremely worried about the attacks on his policies as it relates to transgender surgeries because they immediately put him on tv bashir direct to camera claiming uh that he did not uh agree with transgender surgeries of course we then found out sean in the news that he had lied about all this because he had claimed at the time of the veto of Senate Bill 150 that these surgeries don't even happen in Kentucky. Right. But then we found out from the University of Kentucky that that they do. Right, Sean? Correct. So letter was revealed, I guess it was last week. Yeah. Uh, from the University of Kentucky saying that they had, in fact, performed gender reassignment surgeries for minors. And uh, the governor was very much caught off guard by this fact. And he, he apparently outsourced. He said in his comments that he uh, he had consulted with the Fairness Campaign, which is a far left interest group here in Kentucky uh, on on that law and his his decision to, to veto the bill. So apparently he uh, he outsourced his medical advice. Uh, you know, dur during covid, he outsourced it to Dr. Fauci. Now he's outsourced it to the Fairness Campaign, which is a far left group here in Kentucky. Uh, and so. Yeah, so this letter came out saying these surgeries had happened, and so he just was wrong or lied. He lied. Uh, I mean, look, they they lied. Yeah. They've got terrible advisors. It's not just the fairness campaign. It's these sisters of perpetual indulgence. These people have tremendous influence over Bashir. But it, it seems to me he's really boxed in on this issue because he vetoed the bill that would have outlawed the surgeries that he said weren't happening but actually were happening. He's gone on television and made these claims, and um, Jared, I think, do we have the, I think the Cameron campaign has taken notice of all this, and I, I caught an ad today on television where they're they're back in this fray. I think they believe this is a winning issue for them and that the people of Kentucky are 
uh, or with Cameron over Bashir on the topic of transgender surgeries. Gender reassignment surgery for kids. Hold it. Andy Bashir is lying. Bashir did everything in his power to allow permanent gender reassignment surgery for children. Here's the proof. Here's the news coverage. Here's his signature. Andy Bashir. Permanent surgical sex changes. Life-altering mistakes. Bashir sided with transgender protesters instead of protecting kids. Now he's lying to cover it up. Bashir thinks he's got you fooled. A yeah, very hard-hitting ad, and if you see it visually rendered, what you'll see is they actually show Andy Bashir's signature going on the veto document, Jared, uh, where he, you know, he he did it. He vetoed Senate Bill One. It's like a lot of issues. You know, Bashir wants to claim credit for the economic impact of tax cuts, even though he vetoed the tax cuts. He wants to say he's against these surgeries. He vetoed the bill that outlawed the surgeries, Jared. It is incredible how, like, every time now Bashir gets up to talk, we've we either figured out he's lying, he's fudged the numbers, or you know he's vetoed the bill that he's taking credit for. I mean, it, it is incredible. Um, I mean, Sean, you can you probably know them all better than me. The lists now of these, you know, the numbers that he's lied about, the things he's shall taken I list cr- the ways? Shall I list P- the ways? Please, please how, how do I lie? Let's, yeah, should we break them down by like category? Like, let's start with economic data, then public safety. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. So, I mean, earlier this year, he lied about the number of teacher vacancies, mm. which he was saying was a reason that people should pass his education plan, uh, whatever that was. And so he lied about those. Uh, he then lied about the number of people working in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. He said that we had more people working than ever before in the history of the Commonwealth. But in fact, Later, it was found out that the numbers that he was rolling out were numbers that double counted or even triple counted workers. Uh, so Andy Bashir thinks it's fine in 40 year high inflation that you're having to work one or two jobs, two jobs, three jobs to make ends meet. Um, his his office then rolled out crime numbers that said, oh, homicides are down 30 percent in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Well, come to find out they missed like a hundred homicides in Louisville and God knows where else. So this, this guy has a problem with the truth and this, this gender reassignment lie is, is just the, the latest in a litany of falsehoods that Andy Bashir has trotted out from his press room. Okay. I want to ask you, Scott, before we get off the governor's race here, uh, I know our flyover country podcast listeners do like some of the inside baseball and understanding and put things into context. And as far as what's been reported, there's been a lot of reporting since our last podcast about the public policy is the PPP public policy polling poll. I think that showed Bashir up like 48, 41 or 49, 41 over, uh, over Daniel Cameron. And this is a poll, a pollster, that in my memory, at least, is certainly a Democratic pollster, but one also that produces polls with a desired news intent. In other words, they, they, they put it out for a certain reason. And I thought it was, so that's conspicuous, but also the fact that Andy Bashir is not over 50%, I think, is is conspicuous there. But what's, put that into context for me, this recent poll. Yeah, if you're an incumbent Democrat governor and PPP can't get you to 50% in their survey, uh, you need to start losing sleep. Because that's what they're that's what that company is made to do. Um, so, uh, you know, Cameron's barely run a single positive ad on his own behalf. I'm not surprised 
that Bashir would be ahead. But I'm just watching, and you know, if you have an incumbent, I'm watching their number. And by the way, this is a two-person race. In 1915 and 11, it was three people. Go back to 19. Bevin lost by 5,000 votes. The Libertarian got 28,000 votes. In this race, it's Cameron and Bashir. That's it. There's no third door for anybody. And so Bashir can't get by with 49% of the vote. He's going to have to get to 50. And I think Cameron's path to 50 is easier, candidly, uh, because we have more Republicans and more conservatives than uh, Bashir's is. Uh, so I, I really I really think as Cameron's positive ad campaign ramps up, you're going to see his numbers rise. And I do believe the attack ads on Bashir are taking a toll. Uh, and I think you can see it in their responses. I think if they weren't worried about what was being said, you wouldn't see him direct a camera, you know, lying about his own record to refute it. Well, and that was my, well, my last question. And then go ahead, go ahead, Sean. Yeah, I just want to say, you know, the the number that's like really been trotted out by, in all these polls shows that Andy Bashir has really not increased his base of support since he was elected. Like he he barely won. He didn't win with with 50 percent of the vote, certainly. Uh, And so he has not built a coalition that is going to lend itself to success here. And so I I, I would just totally associate myself with everything that Scott said. But I just want to remind people that, you know, this is it's going to be a close race, but also he's not none of the polling shows that he has increased his base of support since he won in twenty nineteen. Last question for you, Scott, and then we'll get on to the, the Trump indictment on this race. And again, this is sort of like you know inside baseball and your, your track record or your experience. I was surprised when I watched that deluge of commercials earlier today uh, that Andy Bashir is saying Daniel Cameron's name mm. in his ads. And that to me is unusual for an incumbent governor, especially this early, to say the, the Daniel Cameron, like the first and last name of his opponent. Am I... Is my memory at all right there in terms of most campaigns? You 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 might see it from a challenger who was behind, right, all the time. But but if if you don't usually see it from incumbents who think they're ahead, mm-hmm. I thought it was strange as well. But I think it I think it underscores a couple of things. Bashir's a little freaked out, and he's got really thin skin, and he he you know he doesn't like to be questioned or challenged. You know, he doesn't like it when reporters ask him questions. He doesn't like it when. People call his record into question. Not a single lie has been told about Andy Bashir on television. He did pardon these criminals. He did veto Senate Bill 150. I mean, everything that's being said about Bashir is true. The difference now, Joe, is that he, you know, he got away with it for four years, basically doing one thing in Frankfurt and either saying another or hiding it uh, or not being seriously questioned about it. Now he is, and he doesn't like it. He's he's never he he's never had the the thick skin. Uh, that you would expect out of a uh, somebody who's supposedly uh, a popular incumbent. So it, it was a little surprising to me to see that, Joe. But then again, on the other hand, knowing how thin-skinned he really is and and uh, how revealing these ads have been on him, I, I wasn't completely shocked uh, that he immediately kind of freaked out. Guys, speaking of names, I want to thank Scott here on the podcast for not using my name on CNN when he re- when he referred oh. he he referred to a confused person that he knows back home so scott you were talking about the this this trump indictment 
Yeah. And I, and I, Which I, one I, is I, it? <laughs> oh, yes. So, Jerry, I don't know if you have the. It was when I was on with Kate Baldwin. And I know we've got a couple of clips queued up, but she asked me, she said, Scott, she's from Indiana, by the way. She said, Scott, you know, Indiana, Kentucky, like back at, back home, you think people are getting like indictment overload? And I said, well, actually, Kate, uh, I have a friend who is like one of the most voracious news consumers that I know. This man's very literate on the news. And he asked me every day, which indictment is this? Which jurisdiction? Which prosecutor? What are the charges again? And every day I explain it to him. And every day he asks me again. And so if he's confused, <laughs> then apply this to the less voracious news consumer. Apply this to the person who, you know, only is a moderately you know, participatory voter. Apply this to the average Trump voter who only votes in presidential elections. And it's only if Trump's on the ballot. Like, of course, of course, people are in indictment overload. And of course, they're having trouble sorting it out. And I think a great many people are just now kind of lumping all this together, not really knowing the difference, just knowing that, A, Donald Trump is in trouble. <laughs> B, maybe they think it's a witch hunt or maybe they don't. But C, and Jared, this is the point I was making in the coverage um, on Monday night. I think C, honestly, wanting resolution to this before they have to vote next November. <laughs> Back with me now. Scott, I mean, she invoked your yeah. name there. I mean, just <sighs> the point of what could have been avoided. What's your final thought here tonight? Well, if ifs and buts were candy and nuts, every day would be Christmas. I mean, that's the, the thing. I mean, you can go back in time and wish people had made different choices, but we are where we are. You know, my, my final... I'll let that slide just given it's one fifty three in the morning. <laughs> yeah. I... <laughs> that political analysis. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, he hit her over here, Scott. <laughs> you know what? I? A broad broad majority of the American people are very dissatisfied with the prospect of a rematch between Trump and Biden. And I think there is going to be even more dissatisfaction if we don't get the results of some of these cases before people vote next November. He has been charged with, you know, mishandling national security documents. He's been charged trying to overthrow the government on January 6th. He's been charged in this Georgia case. To me, not getting, not letting him resolve these things before he stands for the office of presidency, if he's the nominee, I just don't see how we can stand for it. Uh, we, we, that was the kind of the tail end of our conversation after the indictments. <laughs> We'd been on all night talking about <laughs> the indictments in Georgia. But earlier, we, we, you know, I had said, um, what, what if Donald Trump, after the November election in 2020, had just said, you know what, screw it. Y'all can have Joe Biden. I'm going to play golf for four years, and I'll see y'all in 2024. Had he done that, this man would be ahead by 20 points right now, and Democrats would be picking out a nursing home for Joe Biden. Yeah, Honestly, I mean, had he done that. Ifs and buts, candy and nuts. <laughs> if he, Which, by the way, was a, a favorite saying of John Boehner, you know, the old Speaker of the House. But had Trump just said, fine, fine. I know how terrible Joe Biden is, and y'all are about to find out. He'd be a, he would be on the cusp of a coronation. Instead, he's on the cusp of jail <laughs> in like four different places. Somebody tweeted Joe that he is now under indictment in every city in the National League East except for Philadelphia. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so I and by the way, despite all of that. 
he is effectively tied in the national polling with Joe Biden. I just, yeah, I just wonder exactly. if you went back in time and he made different choices and just let all this crap go and just let this thing come to him. How much, how much better would his life be right now? Good Lord. So you have the, I guess January 2nd is the proposed trial date in the January 6th case, the federal case, Jack Smith's the special prosecutor. And now, uh, how do you pronounce her first name? Is it her first name? This Bonnie, 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 Bonnie Willis in in Georgia, who of course is the the state prosecutor there. The, what I find to be the most fascinating uh, response to the question at that late night news conference on Monday night, when the indictment came down against Trump and in trying to override the Georgia election, there is when the reporter said, "Are you are you planning on prosecuting everyone these these nineteen people together?" And she says. Am I planning on prosecuting them together? And I, I, I thought for a second she was going to say, "Well, of course not. That, that's ridiculous." She said, "Yes." <laughs> so, yeah. How on earth? How does that work? Well, I, all the lawyers I was on TV with, and all of them I talked to off the air said, "This is not going to happen. This is an impossibility." You've got 19 people. Several of them will have multiple lawyers, and all the accoutrement that goes with that. I mean, you'd have to rent out like the Georgia Dome. <laughs> <laughs> to, to warehouse yeah. all these people. And by the way, they're all in different positions. You know, some of these low-level people are in a, just a different life position than Donald Trump or Rudolph Giuliani. And I, I have my doubts whether all these defendants are going to make it because some of these people are looking at their situation going, I ain't rich, I don't have money. Now, rich people don't usually go to jail, but people like me do. I don't want to go to jail. Mm-hmm. These are serious felonies, okay? Mandatory minimums. And no governor can pardon you in Georgia. So my assumption is some number of these people are going to end up pleading out, flipping. Uh, and some of these people are going to try to split off. Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff, is trying to get this moved over to federal court. I assume Trump's going to do the same. So I actually think we're pretty far from knowing, Joe, how this trial is going to play out. There's a there's another RICO case going on with some rappers or something in Georgia that she's involved in. It took like seven months to get a jury, just to get a jury. Jared, you know about this one? Yes. Yeah. This is going to unfortunately go over everybody's heads. I think Van Jones maybe made this point last night, young thug and the like YSL rap gang. Um, So this is kind of Fonny's thing, I guess, is, is going after these big, groups and I guess kind of criminal gangs and in, in both senses if if you know charged. Um it, again it's a huge undertaking. Um it this is also supposed to be televised um apparently which again adds another layer of you know I don't know pick your word amusement or entertainment or you know whatever. Um so I guess this is kind of her thing and her office's thing is going after you know big groups of people. Um, but again, I think to Scott's final point, you know, at, at 2 a.m. that morning, if if these aren't settled by Election Day, I mean, how again, I think there's this like presumption from Democrats and those on the left that like, oh, yeah, he's just he's guilty. We've got him again. And, you know, Trump always kind of weasels out of these things. And so if if folks go in and say, yeah, it's yeah, it's a witch hunt. It hasn't he hasn't been charged yet. Yeah, of course, I'm going to vote for him C- again. Couple- I couple notes on this this point about resolution for the cases it strikes me that until a jury gets these things any of these things to most republicans they're just going to seem like political documents yeah 
I mean, he's under indictment from prosecutors, but most Republicans see these prosecutors as either agents of Merrick Garland, who's an agent of Joe Biden, or Fonnie Willis, who's an agent of the Democratic Party in Atlanta, or Alvin Bragg, who's a partisan Democrat in New York. And so until a jury actually gets these things, which means Donald Trump had a chance to clear his own name, I just don't think Republicans are going to view these things as legitimate legal documents until he gets a chance to clear his own name. Like, I know his lawyers are, and I, I think they it, it's in his best interest probably legally to push all this out as far as you can, especially the federal stuff. But to me, the average Republican voter, just the average regular voter is like, well, I mean, I don't like Biden. I might want to vote for Trump, but I don't want to vote for a convicted felon, but I don't know if he's a convicted felon yet, so I need these trials to happen. So I just, I don't know. I just, I, I think we have to have resolution. Now, most of the lawyers were saying to me they didn't think this one could possibly be resolved. But in some ways, this is the most important case. Or, you know, I mean, it, it is it is central to the argument that Joe Biden, here, here's the thing. Biden's entire campaign is going to be Donald Trump can't be trusted with our democracy. And he's going to say, look, he's under indictment by Jack Smith and Fonnie Willis. Well, the way you argue back against that is to get acquitted. But if you can't have a trial, how are you going to get acquitted? So these things are playing into Joe Biden's campaign narrative. I just think Trump needs a chance to beat it so it can be part of his narrative. His lawyers probably disagree with me, but as a political matter, as a voter, that's how I see it, Joe. I find this, and I, I don't disagree with you when you talk about these being political documents as well as legal ones, but it, this is where it's so different because I certainly believe that no person is above the law. I think that if you break the law and you commit a crime, then you didn't need to be held accountable. But you also believe in innocence before proven guilty. But I also believe in precedent when it comes to presidents. And and, and there is a difference there between a presidential, a, a, first of all, U.S. president acting as president. And secondly, somebody who was the leading candidate for any political party. And this is where, again, I challenge people. And, you know, and it's and I, I don't I won't go on and on about my disdain for Donald Trump. I mean, I've. I've never voted for him. I've, I've, I think he's an amoral character. It's a whole never once, you know, never once. Hmm. So, uh, no, because he's an amoral character. Okay, I, I could not. What a rhino! Unbelievable. <laughs> that said, that said, <laughs> he is. What I, what how, I how is Joe even allowed to be on this podcast? Is my yeah. <laughs> Guess I should speak up. <laughs> Jared, Jared, Sean, and I are going to go into executive session. <laughs> That's fine, oh, Joe. No. You just keep talking. You got to leave we're me gonna, with We're going to go into another meeting room here. We'll be back in a minute. You do that. I'm going to listen to some to, to, to some young thug. But in the meantime, <laughs> in the mean, that was like the most I, white thing you've ever said. I've heard a lot of. Like, well, I don't know. To me, you've ever said here on this podcast. I think I think one of his the, the slime season mixtapes. We're among the best that of hip hop. <laughs> oh boy, what is even happening right now? <laughs> anyway, no, but back to my point. Before Young Thug, and that is when I was a reporter, I often challenged myself when I was uh, reporting on something that was very uh, political and partisan and 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 and, and deep rooted feelings about this. And I'm I'm going to take out the names, and I'm going to I'm going to switch them. And these candidates, would I still feel the same way if it were if it were the candidate of the opposite stripe? If it was Joe Biden's name, 
in this, would I be thinking the same thing about this as I would about Donald Trump? And I, this is this is the challenge here. And I, when it comes down to how we are looking at, okay, you have the leading candidate of a political party who is under indictment four times now in this situation. And I, despite my disdain for him personally, at the same time, he's owed his, to your point, Scott, his day in court. He also is, is before you have an election, you need to know whether or not this person is guilty of a felony or not. Let me so, let me com- let me comment on this point, Joe, because I keep getting asked on TV, Scott, will Republicans continue to back Donald Trump if he is convicted of any felonies? And I keep saying on TV, well, my view is there's a large cohort of Republicans who will not vote for or associate their franchise with a convicted felon. And then other people say, "Oh, Scott, they're going to back Trump no matter what. So will you blah blah blah." Well, Quinnipiac today has come out with a survey. If a person, here's the question, if a person is convicted of a felony, do you think they should still be eligible to be president? All voters, 22% said yes, 70% said no. What do you think it was among Republicans? I'll let you guys guess. I would say more than half said yes, you can still be president. Jerry, what do you guys think? Should be able to vote, I would think, is very low. I would say 14 No, 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 no. The question is, if you're convicted of a felony, should uh, you be president? Yeah. 14% of Republicans said yes. Okay. All right. Sean, you want to hazard a guess? I'll say maybe 7%. 7? You and Jared are low. Joe, you're high. The answer was 28% of Republicans said yes. 58% 58% said no. So you think okay. about the implications for Trump. And, and think about the calendar. He could become the de facto nominee of the Republican Party sometime in the spring. And between that moment and August at the Republican convention, when he becomes the actual nominee, he could be convicted of a felony. So at that point, you've got 58% of Republicans saying a felon should not be eligible to be president, yet we'll be asking the convention to nominate, at that point, maybe a convicted felon, regardless, regardless of how you feel about Donald Trump. It is obvious to me that any felony conviction here is certain political death. All voters don't want it. Democrats don't want it. Republicans don't want it. Independents, 25 percent yes, 68 percent no. This is a major issue for the Republican Party. And I know all these Republicans are standing behind Trump now. They think it's a witch hunt. They think it's absolutely terrible what's happening to him. But the the the, the, the electoral reality here is <laughs> if he is convicted of a felony, he is not going to be elected president. I'll throw one more at you. I'll throw one more at you. Associated Press today reporting on their new survey. Overall, Donald Trump, 35% of Americans have a favorable view of Trump, only and 62% have an unfavorable view. There is a in this survey, there is a 35% gap between Trump's favorability in Republican primary versus his favorability among general election voters. And here's the kicker: 64% of Americans say they definitely or probably would not support Trump next November, 
53% said definitely, and this is before, before they know whether he is going to be convicted of a felony or not, and I think it's certain he's going to be convicted of at least one. So what I think is happening here is so clear. A whole bunch of people really think Trump got a raw deal, and maybe he is. A whole bunch of people really want to give him a chance to sort of fix all this and make it right, but the political conditions do not exist to allow that to happen apart from one thing. Joe Biden is massively unpopular. His economic policies are massively unpopular. I mean, you think about it. Trump's under indictment in four places, likely to be convicted in his entire worldview right now revolves around how badly he's being treated and yet he still is basically tied with joe biden in the national polls that's how bad joe biden and joe biden's presidency really is but i i just look at this polling guys and i'm just telling you you know for trump i mean i would say it would be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle but i don't even know if that captures it i don't even know if that captures it my goodness. <laughs> yeah, I don't. That was man. I feel like we're at two a.m. with Caitlin Collins. That was a that was a new one. Um, well, I'm sorry, y'all weren't actually, all familiar. I've never heard that you, one before. I'm actually, sorry. I'm sorry. Whoa, 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 whoa! That's a very old phrase, Jared. Yeah, it's really old. It's like I don't, I don't know. know. That, I, it's like two thousand years old. It's like maybe our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has said it himself. Assuredly, I God, say to you ones. that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jared, what are you doing? <laughs> he he moved up to Maine or whatever. And it's like, I just want to say, Jared, thank Book you. Book of Matthew 19, of 23, 24. Come on, boys. On the Bible. This is good. I will. I, I, I'm going uh, uh, to try to bring it home Vermont, they, they not got Bibles up there? What's the matter <laughs> with you? Apparently not, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, do, I do think Joe, to kind of your original point and Scott's point, that that big label of either felon or acquitted is going to be big because for folks like us, look, we've listened to the phone calls with the election folks in Georgia, and we've heard the testimony of the election workers who were bullied and such. And, you know, even on the Stormy Daniels thing, him affiliating himself, you know, with that sort of behavior is disqualifying. But for the average person, it's all just kind of melded together and they don't know what's real and they don't know what's serious. But I do think that final label, if they can stamp either felon or acquitted on him, that will be a big determining factor for people because they're just not, you know, they just don't keep up with it as much as, as, as we do. And so again, when we heard the phone call to the election workers from Trump and Georgia, that was like, are you, we're out on this guy. But for most folks, they don't they haven't heard that phone call. They don't know what it was about. They don't know what he lied about. They don't know who else. They, you know, those the 18 other people in this, they probably couldn't pick 17. Maybe Rudy Giuliani could get picked out of a lineup. But it's, you know, and so it's I think it's tough for the average person to understand this until there's a verdict. And if there's mm-hmm. no verdict come election day, I, I don't you know, I don't know what they're supposed to do. I think the biggest consequence of those polls you decided, Scott, is that you're guaranteed now for the mainstream media 
to prop up Donald Trump's Republican candidacy again, like they did in 2016. Oh, let me tell because, you something. because let me because they something. believe that he is uh, he's he's he is a guarantee for Joe Biden to be reelected the same way that he was a guarantee for Hillary Clinton to be elected, and they're going to go all in on Trump, Trump, Trump. Now that those polls show that what what a poison pill he is. Let me tell you something. It's incredible. The mainstream media and Donald Trump and the Democrats are all working together right. to get Donald Trump the nomination. That's right. And they're all working together to destroy Ron DeSantis. I haven't endorsed anybody in this race, but it's obvious to me the one they worry about the most. Ron DeSantis has had more money spent on negative ads against him than any other candidate in this race. 20-something million in negative ads. You can always tell the one they're worried about by who they're attacking. And so, yes, I think the Dems in the media are desperate. They're desperate for Donald Trump to get this nomination. They're not stupid. They can read a poll. Now, they tried this in 16, and it backfired. But remember, she did win the national popular vote. But Trump's numbers are so much worse. They're so much worse now. And these felony convictions hanging over his head. And again, I'm not I'm not making a legal judgment. I'm not here to make a I don't know what's gonna happen. Maybe he beats him. I don't know. But if any of these things nip him, it's just to me an impossibility that he could be elected president. So you gotta ask yourself, do you want to roll the dice on the probability of a convicted felon being your nominee, which would almost assuredly hand Joe Biden? a.k.a. Kamala Harris, four more years in the White House. This is very concerning to me. You think Joe Biden's bad? Wait for her. She's a lunatic. Speaking of lunatics, let's go to... No, the oh, Jefferson wait. County... Oh, wait. Yes. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. One more thing yes. on the indictment. I, I just, you you yes. referenced it. I forgot to address it. Oh, yes. Jared, do we have the sound of the uh, of O.J.? The the the, uh, the 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 uh I did promise this. You're right. Oh you're my right. gosh. I'm so <laughs> I'm out there with uh Kate Baldwin and my sparring partner for this panel the day after was Van Jones, who by the way, I love Van Jones. I've gotten to know him over the last seven years. Terrific guy. We don't agree on a ton of stuff, but I will tell you, I think he is a very, very keen observer and a realistic person. But anyway, Kate's asking us, because this Georgia case, other, unlike the federal cases, if it goes to trial, they actually have TVs in the courtroom. And she was asking Van and me, like, do you think this will change people's minds about the charges if they can actually watch the trial? Jared, you've got the clip. Do you think cameras in a courtroom in Georgia could change any of this? I think it helps because at least people are watching the same show, people are watching the same stuff. But remember... There were cameras in the courtroom for O.J. Simpson, yeah. and people had very different <laughs> opinions about what was going on <laughs> even very there. Very good point. Yeah, so, um, if these ballots don't fit. <laughs> no, we are not, we are not, no, we are not going there right now. Sarah? I'm just saying, the ballots don't fit. You must acquit. You might hear that. I don't know. We'll see. But anyway, Kate brought up a good point. This may be the only trial that we see. Yeah. This may be the only trial that we see. If it happens during the election, it will be must-see TV. And, you know, I, I guess everybody will see in these things what they want to see. I will say the complexity of this case, though, is mind-boggling. I mean, you read the indictment. It's no, it's nowhere right. near as clear what's going on 
as the Jack Smith indictments. I'm sorry to prolong this topic, Joe, but I wanted to make no, sure. No, you're good. Right what What's the last? last well, I was, gonna say, I was just going to say that the, the, the Trump, the Trump show going off the air has been death to the uh, cable news networks uh, and, and not, not just yours, Scott, but several others out there. So this might be a revival for all of them. But speaking of acquittals, the Jefferson County Public Schools did not acquit themselves all that well for the first day of school a week ago. And since then, this is a, a, an update for folks outside of Kentucky and all over flyover country. And this is not a joke. Public schools in Louisville, Kentucky, the largest city in the, in, in the Commonwealth, have not held classes since the first day of school a week ago. And they're not going to return to class until at least and only elementary school students will go back on Friday. The high school students won't go back until Monday. And that's if they get the elementary school's kids home safely on Friday and the bus situation works out. This has just been a complete, I mean, in their own words, disaster, <laughs> catastrophe. It is, it is a meltdown. It is an embarrassment. And the, the big question here, of course, is for, for I think for for all of us here, for the longest time, my little diatribe here, whether as a reporter or as a member of different civic organizations in the past, I've always been kind of chastised. Like whenever we talk to, to bring up JCPS policy, structure, you know, just talk about some of the deficiencies, we've always been sort of like uh, slapped down and said, oh, that's you no, know, you can't go there. You don't understand. It's more complicated than that. And as a result, they have really, you know, escaped the kind of scrutiny that they're getting now with this because you can't avoid the obvious disaster that we're all going through in this community now because of this incompetence. Yeah, yeah. Jared, uh, Jared, this is this has been a disaster on so many levels. I mean, when the buses couldn't function on the opening day of school. I mean, there were urine-soaked children being delivered to their parents at 10 o'clock at night. Outrageous. Yeah. Joe, to your point, the amount of people who have been like, well, there's bus problems every year and there's bus problems in other cities. It's like, I don't care. This is our city. This is our school district. Let's figure it out. I mean, it's. I, I was talking to somebody about this the other day and I said, gee, what if we gave schools like a whole season off where like the school board could meet and they could like figure out their plans for the upcoming year. No, what a crazy like, idea. I'm just, yeah, I know, I know crazy. That's crazy. But like, what if we just gave them like, I don't know, three months off during the summer and they could figure all this out and iron it all out. Uh, and so it was ready to go. I mean, again, the, but Jared, the, Jared, what if, what if these people had that opportunity, but they spent the whole entire summer trying to find a way to undermine state law hmm. as it related to radical gender ideology in the classroom. Yeah, I know exactly what I do. I would give the superintendent a $75,000 raise. Um, so all speaking, that like learning speak, loss we talked about. Jared, speaking of the money. speaking of the superintendent polio, what did he have to say this week after all this meltdown happened? Take um, questions both from parents and media yesterday yourself. I think I've been pretty accessible to the media. I mean, over the past two weeks, are you, I mean, I, I've done at least 10 of these. These. Understanding, but yesterday specifically. Well, if you are, what are you asking me specifically? Why, why are you asking, what are you asking me specifically? 
Why was there no media availability yesterday? We did not schedule a media. So if you are asking me if I was a dad yesterday, yes, I was a dad yesterday. If that's what you are asking me, my family has suffered a great deal from me having this job. I think that's, that is really an unbelievable question from you. It is Sir, I'm answering the question. And yes, did I drive my daughter to college? I don't know who else would do that. I drove my daughter to college while I worked the entire time. I was a dad yesterday morning. On the phone the entire time, dropped her off at college and came back and worked the entire time. So if there is an issue with that, me not being available to speak to you because I was being a dad, then that's what I was being. I was being a dad, and I will look back from that, and I haven't cried in 20 years. I cried when I dropped my daughter off at college yesterday and left. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I actually have some sympathy for, you know, parents who have to deal with it. Joe, you just, you're just taking a kid to college here this week and the one last year. I mean, I, I get it. But the point of that press conference where he talked about how much his own family had suffered because of the job that he has, this man makes a tremendous amount of money. He knew what he was signing up for when he took the job. And, you know, there's a very, very, very quick way to alleviate all of his family's suffering. He could do it right now if he felt like it. <laughs> Quit. If it's that bad for your family, quit. And I didn't think the questioning was out of line at all when you consider yeah. the mass chaos that his school system caused parents all over the city a little. What a what a terrible answer. I, I'm sorry that again, I think all of us understand that like look family and those sorts of things Trump work a lot of times. And he could have said that. And he could have been, you know, honest and, and nice about it to say, yeah, it was unfortunate timing i was you know bringing my daughter to work it didn't line up correctly i would have liked to be here and talk to you guys but you know sometimes life gets in the way of those sorts of things i mean why he couldn't show a little bit of sympathy or empathy to the the children you know scott as you mentioned who didn't get home. i mean there were stories of kids just getting dropped off at random corners and uh yeah. non-english speaking students getting dropped off because they couldn't communicate with the, a bus driver who wasn't there i mean terrifying terrifying i mean if i was a parent i can't even imagine not knowing where your child was at nine o'clock at night and so the to to lack the the sympathy for those parents while also you know expressing your own uh, frustrations i mean it's just unbelievable answer i i'll just say that i do to your point scott and i am a father and i have a college-age son and it's one soon to be in college next year and so i i want to be there for them but I will tell you that, um, and not to be to, to prosecute this, this. Frankly, this is pretty kind of a trivial part of a, a much larger problem with JCPS overall, as far as it being a failing district uh, and learning loss and everything else we talked about early on with Daniel you know, Cameron's plan. But that said, so I the, the my employer has an annual convention, basically annual meeting once a year that I have a major role in. My family, we had a major situation going on. It wasn't terrible, but it was something that I, sh I I would have liked to have been a part of. It was on the same day as my employer's annual, the, the, the our biggest day of the year. I missed my family function for the sake of being there because that's my job. And 
and, and even though it wasn't planned, even though Marty Polio couldn't have, or he maybe he should have known, but he didn't plan for it to be a disaster, catastrophe, whatever you want to call it, on the first day of school. Once that happened, you need to adjust. To adjust, you're a leader. You need to be at the helm. And yes, I understand. I, I've had plenty of calls, conference calls, while I've been driving before, and I, I understand that. But it's not the same thing as having your leader there at the helm and telling people what to do in the office. So that to me is a complete uh, dereliction of duty on the part of the leader of one of the largest employers. And beyond that, the last thing I'll say about that, and as far as this is that regardless of whether that any of us have a child who is a JCPS student is irrelevant. If you live in this community, public education, as we we're all told many, many times, is essential. It's something that it is it is part of the fabric of a community. It's very important for it to succeed. So we all have a role here in in supporting it. And in but but that support also means scrutinizing. And back to what the first thing I said, for the longest time we've been told if you scrutinize, if you criticize, if you question, then you don't support public education. My like, time out. I think this is the BS moment. Yeah. You know, this yeah. is this is the emperor has no clothes moment for JCPS. And it's time for, and I'm disappointed, frankly. Uh, I don't say many things about the governor on this podcast, but I'll say I'm disappointed that he did not respond to our talk about calling a special session of the General Assembly as he has been called to do. Because this is, I, I don't know if it's a, a more important issue for our state and for this community than than the the functioning of this school district. Well, it's 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 par for the course for him. He doesn't want the legislature to to do anything. I mean, look, these are all his allies. These are all his supporters. This is the Bashir clan running the school system here. And they failed and he doesn't want to call any attention. He would rather you believe he he would just rather pretend it doesn't happen. Just like the learning loss. He doesn't want you to know that's happening either. And the best way to do that in his mind is just to ignore it. Pretty pathetic, Sean. The, the the governor's whole entire mentality about all of this stuff is to say everything is fine. Don't don't pay attention to these numbers that show learning loss, that shows crime, that shows uh, any any of these things that look like look like a negative story. Uh, and so he he's not able to actually address these problems. Well, let's hope for all of our sake and for our children's sake and for our community's sake that. They can get their act together and actually get kids to and from school safely on Friday, even though they're doing a, a small subsection of a subset of uh, students there. And then all the students are supposed to go back, I guess, on on Monday. We'll see what happens. But that said, guys, we are running short on time. And I think we need to get some little scene red herd uh, across the flyover country perspective here. Sean, what do you got for us here? I think you've been don't have you don't you have like a movie review for us. Well, you know. I've been absent these last few weeks, and so uh, I did go see the uh, Mission Impossible Part One uh, the, of the the finale, and it was really good. I would highly recommend people go do it. I'm kind of a, a sucker for Mission Impossible movies. I watched all of them, uh, rewatched all of them up up until uh, the new one came out, and you know it was it was really well done. Uh, I think that everyone should go back also and watch the original Mission Impossible to see John Voight. Yeah, in uh, the one that that's a great out. movie. That's a true. I love that movie. I, I haven't. I don't, I, if it's on, I'll watch it. The other ones, I 
I could take or leave. I don't mind them, but that first one is terrific. My it it had been a long time since I had had rewatched it, and so when I watched it, it was kind of like the first time. Like it felt like the first time that I'd seen it in a long while, and I mean, it, it's got a lot of twists and turns to it. That, that's the one where he dangles from the ceiling, right? In the in the CIA like clean room, or is that the second one? I I think I think it's one. the first one. Am I, I wrong? Which no, one is? I, it? You're not wrong. I, I I think you're right. No, I think you're right. You said the original Mission Impossible. I thought Peter Graves, but that's a whole other story. That's the TV show from the 1970s. That was also prior to Young Thug. Jared, yeah, well, if, if it's not in black and white, then Joe doesn't recognize it yeah. as being part of the pantheon. The of 1970s the- TV was in color. Jared, go ahead. <laughs> um, I think last time we did Scene Red Herd, I had started Blacklist. I'm out on that. It just, I don't know. It, it never caught on for me. I and never so, saw. Um, Netflix keeps pushing me like Suits and The Witcher. And I was like, I don't really want to watch those. And so I started digging through. And I have for the last week been binge watching Boy Meets World, which I hadn't watched since I was like a kid. Corey and Sean, Corey Matthews. Do you guys remember this? It's on Disney Plus. I can't remember if it ran on like the Disney Channel or where it ran. Boy Meets World. You guys don't know Boy Meets World? Oh, okay. It was a great, it was like a family sitcom kind of. You're too uh, young for that. Who? Me? Yeah. It's like, that's like my generation. Like you're too young and they're too old. I kind of remember watching it growing up. Aren't aren't you two like the same age? About? I mean. Maybe I I watched all. I mean, I I guess everybody younger than I just sort of throw into the same pot. Like you all. all (laughs) How how old are you, Jerry? Same. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm like, you're 28. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. You're, 55, you're, getting, so. you're getting on, you're getting on up there, Sean. Never mind. Go ahead, Jared. Yeah. Go ahead, young, go ahead. Whippersnapper. Yeah. No, maybe I was like <laughs> watching reruns or something. Maybe my brothers watched it or something like that. And I get reruns, maybe a little bit older, Um, but it's just great. Like Americana TV, you know, like, uh, like back when family sitcoms, like were good and celebrated like the good things about America. And now it's all like, crt crap on these disney shows um and so it's nice to see like a good classic family sitcom uh that's just got like silly dad jokes and is really simple i don't know it's just kind of refreshing um, <laughs> you sound really right. busy you sound super busy up there in vermont by the way <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. he's binge watching what meets world <laughs> scott are you binge watching anything well i've got i've got so many seen red herds i'm gonna zip through them real quick Yes, I, I did start watching something. Uh, it was on a recommendation from a friend. There's a movie. Uh, I'm sorry, it's not a movie. There's a series on HBO Max. I guess it's just Max now. I should know this. CNN, we own this. It says on Max, and it's called Warrior. And uh, I guess Bruce Lee, at some point in his life, wrote several seasons of a television show that was found after he died. And... I think they started making this maybe right before the pandemic. I'd never heard of it, but it's called Warrior. And if you like like karate type movies, and uh, it's set in late 1800s San Francisco, and the interplay between the local authorities, the Chinese immigrant community, and the Irish immigrant community. It's kind of the, but the the lead in it 
basically just kicks everyone's ass for like 60 minutes. It's amazing. If you like, if you like karate movies. So anyway, I've been watching that. Um, I've also been uh, reading this week a piece by Jonathan Martin of Politico about Mitch McConnell's quest to save the Republican Party from its lurch toward isolationism. Long piece, but I encourage you to pick that up. I dropped my own kids off at school this week. I know we were talking about the school, so that was going on for the Jennings family. I've got a kid in high school now. Crazy. Uh, I'm tracking this story, Joe, about the football player from the movie The Blind Side, Michael Orr, who's now attacking the family that took him in. I have a hunch there's something going on here we don't know about yet. We'll find out soon enough. And my final thing is I, I visited something in Washington I've never visited. Not too many places I haven't been up there, but I, there was a place I had never been, the Museum of the Bible. I had never been. I went in there on Sunday after State of the Union. I spent like four hours there. It's a huge place, lots of floors, but it's a multimedia experience of biblical-related exhibits, old, like, original Bible, like a Gutenberg Bible is in there. Um, but I have to say the coolest thing in there the exhibit and the the journey through the Old Testament, the way they did it, was friggin' cool. Do you so walk DC, through the eye of a needle? Uh, I did not. I would not fit. It was not easy for me to pass through the eye of a needle. Okay. Scott's, Scott's not as big as a camel, but close, <laughs> close, close. Not. I don't have humps, uh, but he might. He might. He might be considered to be a dromedary. <laughs> Is a dromedary have a single hump? Or a that camel is, too, or else the other way around. I'm never sure. Are you? I think a dromedary has a single a single uh, hump. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> that's my scene reds and herds. I I've seen a lot. I've, I've been. It's been a lot this week for me. I got a lot going. My on. my scene red herd actually is a Scott Jennings scene red herd, because on Wednesday, August sixteenth, the 2023 the 14th annual Best in Kentucky Awards of Kentucky Living Magazine included uh, media personalities from all across the state. I want to thank them all for being a part of that. But one of those media personalities was the aforementioned Scott Jennings. And Scott, because the Agriculture Commissioner, Ryan Quarles, was tossing to him from after giving his award, Scott was Farmer Scott at his farm, at his chicken farm, holding a couple of different hens at different times to announce the best museum in Kentucky. Scott, you did an awesome job. I want to thank you for being a part of our show. I've got to link. Uh, I know this is on the Kentucky Living Magazine. Uh, there it is popping up. I gotta. I got. I know it's on the Kentucky Living Magazine Facebook page. Mm-hmm. But I gotta. I gotta look up the. I gotta. I gotta see how this all worked out because it was really fun the day you came over to the house and we filmed it. The chickens were basically cooperative with what we were trying to do, but I. I trust that in production you made it all. You made it all hum. Well, you did a great job, as did the rest of our media personalities. So that's my scene, Red Herd. Guys, this has been a protracted version of Flyover Country on this uh, Wednesday, August 16th. I want to thank you all for being here, Sean, Jared, Scott. I'm your roundtable host, Joe Arnold. Have a great week. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.